0: The United States military has different units that are sometimes called special forces. For instance, you have the Green Berets in the Army. You have, uh, I believe, the Recons and the Marines. You have Army Rangers. And then you also have the famously known Navy SEALs. These various branches of the military will often be set apart from their other soldiers to endure certain special training so that they can go on special missions. In a very real sense, they are set apart to be sent. Well, the analogy might break down a little bit when it comes to what Jesus is praying for here as these Special forces units are often set apart for missions in which they will assassinate and kill. But Christians are set apart for a saving mission. A mission that in a very real sense follows in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus himself. And as was mentioned earlier, this is in the context of the Gospel of John where Jesus is headed for the cross. This was his mission. It says in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came to display the Father's glory in the climactic way in which he does that is through his death and resurrection. And it's on the evening before this crucifixion that Jesus gives some instruction to his disciples. And the culmination of this instruction in chapters 13 through 17 ends with this prayer of Jesus for his own disciples. And in this prayer, we get to hear something of the heartbeat of the Lord Jesus and his burning desire for his own people. The first petition that comes from the lips of Jesus he prays earlier in this section that his own disciples would be protected from the evil one. Notice what he says earlier on in the section. He says uh, in verse 11, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. I have come to you, O Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me. And then he says later on, in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. So Jesus prays in his first petition to keep these disciples, to keep them, to hold on to them, he says to the Father, and to keep them in particular from the evil one who would seek to destroy their souls. And, and last week we, we, we did a, a little bit of a tangent and we, we, we tried to think about how the devil works to assault the souls of Jesus' own disciples and and some of the, the, the truths that we can combat the lies of the devil with. And now we get to the second petition that Jesus prays in verse 17, which is really, in a sense, a piggyback off of this prayer that we would be kept from the evil one. Because this is part of how we are kept from the evil one. 17, 17, Jesus prays for his own. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. This is a verb. This is a petition. Jesus is praying for his disciples. To be sanctified in the truth. And it's for his, the, his immediate disciples to be sanctified in the truth. But also, the, if you drop your eyes down to verse 20, Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. So Jesus includes everybody who's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ in this prayer. Sanctify them. So we're going to look at three principles from this prayer, so that you would get on board with Jesus and pursue your own sanctification so that you can be part of His mission. The first is the petition for sanctification. Now, sanctify, that's a very churchy word, uh, its noun form is holy or holiness. It's the same word group both in the New Testament and the Old Testament. What does it mean to be sanctified or to be set apart or to be made holy? It's the idea, as I just said, to be set apart. Or some of your translations may say consecrate them. To be set apart. Now, this word um, in some contexts, does not necessarily have a moral connotation. But in other contexts it does have a moral connotation. Uh, what I mean by that is in some contexts in the Old Testament, you think of the dishes in the tabernacle that were sanctified or set apart. Uh, there, there wasn't, a, you know, certain dishes that are righteous and certain dishes that are unrighteous. But the idea is that these were set apart to be, here, here's the word that I think encapsulates the idea of sanctify, to be devoted to the Lord. And we see this Uh, Even within this context in verse 19, notice the language Jesus uses of himself. He says, for their sake, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. Well, what does Jesus mean? Jesus doesn't mean I'm morally cleansing myself. But what he means is I'm setting myself apart to be devoted to the Lord for this mission... Of the cross so that they would be set apart for a similar mission, a saving mission. And so this idea of sanctified is to be set apart, to be devoted to the Lord. Much like, as I just mentioned in the opening illustration, the, a special forces unit is set apart for special assignment, for special mission. So Jesus sets himself apart for his special mission of the cross. And he prays for his disciples to be set apart, to be distinct from the world to be devoted for the special mission that he gives them. And obviously, for those who are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, this then has a moral connotation to it. That we need to be increasingly set apart in our thinking, in our desiring, in our living so that we are ever increasingly devoted unto the Lord and His purposes in our life. Imagine with me for a moment, you're in need of a new couch, and you see an advertisement for a couch that just looks perfect, it's just the right color, it's just the right size for your living space, and you go to that store... And you're ready to purchase that couch and you notice sitting there on top of the couch is the word reserved. And you realize it's not reserved for you. <laughs> but it's been set apart, right? Somebody's already purchased that couch. It's, it's owned by somebody else. It's set apart. It's devoted for them. Or sometimes... Again, it could be a parking space that may say, you know, reserved for the employee of the month. It's set apart. In a similar way, the believer, Jesus prays, is to be set apart for him, to be devoted to him. And this, again, helps us to understand something of the heartbeat of the Lord Jesus He wants his people to be set apart and devoted for him so much that on the evening before his uh, execution, he could have prayed a multitude of things for his disciples. And John, no doubt, could have recorded a multitude of things that Jesus prayed. But this has been recorded for our good that we would know the heartbeat of Jesus is that his own people would be set apart and devoted to him. Jesus wants us to be sanctified to be set apart for him and he prays that the father would do this for us should not that also be your heartbeat should that not also be your desire your ambition what you labor for what you work for what you pray to God for God sanctify me It was the Scottish Presbyterian preacher named Robert Murray McChain. You know, sometimes God raises up people to live a a lifetime of ministry in a very short amount of time. And Robert Murray McChain was one of those guys. He died at age 29. But he famously prayed, God, make me as holy as it is possible for a redeemed sinner to be on earth. That's a good prayer. That's a good prayer to pray. God, make me as holy. And again, this word holiness or sanctify uh, can mean a variety of things in different contexts that you know for in some contexts it may mean you have a certain hairstyle. But, but sanctify, it means to be devoted to the Lord. And ultimately, when we broaden out our understanding of the New Testament, it means to become more like Jesus, who is the ultimate one who is sanctified. It means to be, in the language of the Apostle Paul, in in, in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, all these different attributes and characteristics of the Lord Jesus to image Him in our lives. This is the petition of Jesus. This is the prayer of Jesus. And so, again, it's worth asking yourself, how are you doing in this area of being increasingly set apart and devoted to the Lord? Young people, there's a temptation all around you to become just like the rest of the world. As increasingly, Christianity is a, is a kind of foreign entity in our culture. There's all these sirens going on around you. Just be like the rest of the world. Just fit in. But Jesus prays that we would not fit in. That we would be different. We would be set apart. You see. It's good to have. The boat. In the water. But it's not good to have water in the boat. It's good to have the church. In the world. But it's not good to have the world. In the church. And what I mean by the world in the church. Worldly ideas and beliefs. and Jesus wants us to be set apart. He wants us to be devoted to Him. He doesn't want water in the boat. But He does want the boat in the water. And so friend. If if this is not any kind of ambition. In your heart and life. To, to be devoted to the Lord. This is because you've not yet experienced. The regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. You've not yet experienced the redeeming power. Of Jesus in your life. You just. You know, in the language of Ephesians 2, you are dead in trespasses and sins and you are walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You're just indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and you are by nature a child of wrath even as the rest. And even this morning, the Lord Jesus himself is summoning you out of that. He's saying, turn away from that. Come to me. Trust in me. Believe in me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Realize that you are a rebel against the king. And come to the Lord Jesus empty-handed saying, I have no, nothing good or righteous to offer you. I come to you empty-handed, and I trust in Jesus and alone and what he did on the cross. And he will begin to pull you out and set you apart. He died, on, he sanctified himself so that his own would be sanctified in the truth. He set himself apart to die upon the cross so that you could be set apart. Don't refuse him this morning, my friend. So that's the petition for sanctification. But now, secondly, the process of sanctification. What's the process? Notice Jesus says he's praying to the Father, he's talking to the Father. There's three persons within the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the Son is talking to the Father... And he prays, sanctify them, the disciples, and ultimately everyone who believes in in him through them, in the truth. So, we can conclude from this, the process of sanctification involves the Father sanctifying. Why? How do we know that? Because Jesus talks to the Father and says, sanctify them. God is ultimately the one who brings about this setting apart, this devotion, this fruit of the Spirit in your life. Remember, it's the fruit of the Spirit. God sanctifies. We see this as well with the Apostle Paul when he tells the Philippians in Philippians two twelve and 13. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work In you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is the one who sanctifies. This is why Jesus prays. Father, sanctify them in the truth. This is why you should pray. Father, make me more holy. Make me more devoted to you. Help me to shed these worldly beliefs and ideologies. Help me to shed this sin in my life. Help me to be devoted to you. God is the one who sanctifies. But, even as we talked about this morning, he uses means. Just as we talked about in 1 Corinthians 3, one, you know, Paul says, I planted in Apollos water, but it was God who gives the growth, right? God's sovereignty, he Causes, the change he produces, converts. But there is human instrumentality. And so here, Jesus prays, Sanctify them in the truth. This is the instrument of change. And then he clarifies, just in case, You might think, well, you have your truth, And I have my truth. He says what this truth is. What is the standard of this truth? Jesus says your word is truth. The instrument that God uses. God's the one who brings change. But the instrumentality or the process that he uses. Is his word which is truth. And again we live in a culture that doesn't even at least professedly believe in truth, right? Well, you know, you have your truth, I have my truth, different strokes for different folks. But nobody actually lives by that, right? You know, when you're 30,000 feet in the air on an airplane, you are hoping that that aeronautic engineer didn't say, well, you know doesn't really matter, you know, how much, how strong these wings are supposed to be or how fast this airplane is supposed to go in order to stay up in the air. You know, gravity, you know, it sometimes works, sometimes doesn't No! You want an aeronautic engineer who believes in truth, right? Who's got all the numbers down and has it all figured out so that when you are in that airplane, you are safe and sound. You don't want them, you know, just, well, you know, it doesn't matter really what kind of windows we have in this airplane, you know, as long as they look nice. No. You want sturdy windows that can withhold the force uh, that's all around them. It, n- again, nobody actually lives as a, re- as a, a w- when it lives with the, cons- nobody lives consistently believing that truth is Relative. Because it's not. Jesus was not a moral relativist. You shouldn't be either. In fact, listen to the psalmist in Psalm 119, 142. Your righteousness is is an everlasting righteousness and your law is truth. Psalm 119, 160. The sum of the word is truth. And we see this repeatedly throughout the ministry of the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus was a Bible-believing person. In fact, if you aren't sure about this, you can find somewhere in the archives of messages through the Gospel of John. I think it was when we came to John 10.35, I preached a message called the Bible-thumping Jesus. Jesus was a Bible-thumper. He believed that the Bible is the word of God, is without error, is authoritative in all matters of what we're supposed to believe and how we're supposed to live. And it's demonstrated over and over. I mentioned John ten thirty five, where Jesus says, Scripture cannot be broken. And even in those areas that, that people try to, 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 to pick at and, and say, well, you don't really believe this. It's very clear Jesus believed it. For instance... Jesus believed in the historical accuracy of Jonah. You know that guy who was swallowed by the great fish? Sometimes people say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't really believe that, you know, a prophet was swallowed by a large fish and vomited out three days later. Well, guess what? Jesus believed it. Jesus said, Just as Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days, so the Son of Man will be what? In the belly of the earth for three days. I I mean, after all, we believe stranger things than being swallowed by a fish. We believe in a Savior who rose from the dead. What I'm trying to get at here is you cannot be a Jesus Christian without also being a Bible Christian. Because Jesus believed the Bible is the truth. Another example. How about Noah? You know, sometimes Christians or professing Christians, I should say, will say, Well, I don't really believe in a global flood. Well, evidently Jesus did. Matthew 24, 38. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. How about Lot and Lot's wife and Sodom and Gomorrah? I mean, you don't really believe that God incinerated you know, those cities on the plain of Sodom and Gomorrah for their, them thumbing their nose up at the Lord. You don't really believe he just incinerated them and just rescued a couple people and then, and then struck dead and caused Lot's wife to turn into a pillar of salt. Well, evidently Jesus did because he said, remember Lot's wife. Luke 17.29, but on that day Lot went out of Sodom and it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Verse 32, remember Lot's wife. And of course we can go on and on, but the point being is Jesus believed that the Word of God, the Bible, is the truth. And it is the instrument by which... Believers become increasingly sanctified and devoted, and we know that because Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. And and this this shouldn't be a shocker because last week we saw that which we need to be protected against, namely Satan and the world, what is their great instrument? Lies. 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 And so we are equipped with the truth to combat the lies. And so it's no wonder as we read through the Scriptures over and over, the testimony of Scriptures that is that the agent that God uses to bring about change in a person's life is the Word of God backed by the Spirit of God. We see it even, even in the creation account with, the, the, with the, the physical creation. How does God bring about creation? Let there be. He speaks it into existence. So also with the new creation and, and, and the regenerative work in the believer's life. And then that sanctifying work, that, that recreative work after the image of God, God does it through His Word. The psalmist, David says this in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul, making the wise simple, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes. All these uh, these verbs that the word of God does, here called the law of God or the testimony of the Lord or the precepts of the Lord, it is. It restores the soul. It turns the soul. It causes repentance. It brings life. It makes simple into wise. That's part of the converting work of the word. But then there's two more verbs. It rejoices the heart. It brings more joy to to, to your life as you suck from the promises of God. It also enlightens the eyes so that you can see things more clearly. You can understand this world. Understand reality because you have the truth of God's word. We see this as well in other famous passages. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it is is profitable for doctrine, understanding what God has said. Reproof, knowing the wrong way of believing, the wrong way of living. Correction, knowing then the right way, which way to go and how you believe and how you live. And then training in righteousness so that the man of God would be adequate, thoroughly furnished for every good work. This is the transformative Changing power of the Word of God. Or how about this one? 1 Peter two, two, Like newborn babes, crave the pure milk of the Word so that you may grow in respect to your salvation. So God uses His Word to bring about change. And dare I say, I don't think I've ever met a mature Christian who was not also one who was immersed in the Scriptures. Now, it's true. As I mentioned last week, you can be a student of God's Word and have a knowledge of God's Word and also be infantile in your maturity or even, in in some instances, not even be converted. But, It is the starting point. It can't be the finishing point. It's the starting point. You have to know the truth in order to be able to live the truth. If you don't know the truth, you you can't live the truth. You can't be changed by the truth. You can't have the right beliefs. Think about it for a moment. For somebody to have a child... And to not feed that child, to not give that child the appropriate food and nourishment, it's criminal, right? Neglect. Neglect and abuse. There's laws against that. Rightfully so, if a parent were to starve their child... Are you starving yourself? Are you starving your family? Or how about this? You know, uh, Ephesians 5, 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her so that he might sanctify her by the washing of the water of the word, Right? That the the word of God is likened to not only food and milk to be drunks to produce development, but also to a kind of washing effect. Sometimes children don't like to take a bath. No. It's bath time. I don't want to. You know, they stink. They've been playing in the sand They may even have poopy butt. And they need to be washed. But they're fighting. I don't want to. Friend, do you you fight the washing of the water of the word like that? Don't fight it. Wash yourself with it. Read the word of God. Memorize the word of God. Meditate upon the word of God. Make sure you're here for the public ministry of the Word of God. It is God's instrument of growth and change and vitality and sanctification in your life. Without it, you won't go very far in the Christian life. The person who wishes to be sanctified must be one who reads the Bible, studies the Bible, learns the Bible, trusts the Bible, and therefore has their mind and heart rewired by God's Word. And again, as I mentioned last week, this has to be more like a stem of a plant than a pipe. Okay, We don't want the Word of God like water just kind of running right through us and not actually changing us. But to take it in, to believe it, to, to examine our own hearts and lives is this challenging how I believe or how I live. To submit ourselves to the authority of God's word and what we believe and how we live, shedding maybe different traditions and different lies that we've imbibed. Friend, are you allowing God's word to wash you? Are you feeding upon God's word? Is it a regular habit of your life to consume God's word? You say, I'm too busy for that. (laughs) Well, then you are too busy. Because you're not too busy to eat. I could tell just by looking at you. we take time to eat we take time to drink we know we need it and sometimes you have to force feed yourself sometimes that appetite is not there and that's that's one of, one of the interesting things is that that uh, you know the more typically with food when you stay away from it you get more hungry right but the more you stay away from God's word, the less hungry you get for it. And so you, you kind of have to force feed yourself to kind of prime the pomp of those desire, that desire for God's word. And so sometimes you just kind of shove it down your throat and say, Lord, Lord, forgive me for not desiring your word. There's part of me that wants to want your word, but please, Lord, sanctify me in the truth. I need your truth. Help me. So, drowning out all the multitudes of distractions. Turn your phone off. Put it on whatever. Do not disturb. Whatever mechanism your devices have so that you can hear the voice of God as he speaks through his word. Jesus prayed for this. Perhaps you need to hear the heartbeat of Jesus and say, if Jesus wants this for my life, I should want it as well. So, that's the process of sanctification. The petition of sanctification. Jesus prays to this end. The process, God using His truth. Now lastly, the purpose of sanctification. This may come as a shocker. Verse 18, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. Jesus prays for their sanctification so that they would be set apart with the aim to be sent into the world. In other words, Jesus prays set them apart from the world... So that they would be devoted, so that they might be sent back to the world. In the same way, I have been sent into the world. It, it, notice Jesus' language here. He says, notice the first word of verse 18, at least in the New American Standard 95 and the Legacy Standard. As you sent me. Now, what do we, what do we call that? As. Remember? Similes like or as, remember seventh grade grammar. So Jesus is making a comparison as you sent me into the world, he's talking to the Father. There is some similarity in the same way that Jesus was sent into the world, his disciples are now sent into the world. And it's no wonder they're called apostles, it's the very word, the verb that's the noun of the verb to be sent. But again, this includes not only those immediate apostles, but those who had believed in Jesus through the message of the apostles. So it includes us. So then the obvious question is, why did the Father send Jesus into the world? Well, the Scriptures are not fuzzy on that. The Gospel of John starts out. John 1.14 And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus came. He took upon flesh to manifest the glory of the Father namely through the death and resurrection that He would embrace. Or how about this? John the Baptist got it. (coughs) When he saw Jesus... Off in the distance, in John one twenty nine, he said, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." John understood that Jesus was like a sacrificial lamb to be a substitute, just like in the Old Testament sacrificial system, when the hand was laid on the head of that animal as a picture of the transferring of that guilt, and the throat of that animal was slit, and that animal became a substitute, dying the death that that sinner should die, this was Jesus. Jesus. Or the Passover lamb, when that lamb was slaughtered and eaten and the blood was placed on the doorpost so that God's wrath passed over, this was Jesus, the Lamb of God. Or how about the testimony of Jesus himself in John 7, 37? He says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that the Father has given me, I lose none of them. In other words, Jesus came down from heaven on a mission, on an assignment, namely the salvation of those who had been given to him by the Father. How did he do that? Through his cross. Or how about outside of the Gospel of John? Jesus says in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to what? Seek and to save that which is lost. Or how about the Apostle Paul on 1 Timothy 1.15. Here is a trustworthy statement. Christ Jesus came into the world. To save sinners among whom I am chief. I told you it was not fuzzy. He came to die on the cross. To rescue sinners. So then, say, okay, he came to die on the cross. So does that mean we came to die on the cross for sinners? You know the answer to that. No, we did not come to die as substitutes on the cross on behalf of other sinners. Our death doesn't mean the same thing that Jesus' death meant. Jesus is the God-man who never sinned. He could be that blameless, unblemished sacrifice. We could not be. But nonetheless, the purpose, the intentionality, namely the salvation of sinners, is the comparison, is the common point. While uh, while we cannot die on behalf of another, we can be an instrument in God's hands for the salvation of others. So much that the Apostle Paul uses language like this that almost sounds, if not shocking, maybe Arminian. 1 Corinthians 9, to the weak I became weak so that I might win the weak, I have become all things to all men that I might save some. Oh, Paul, you're a savior, are you? You're going to save some? Now, obviously, Paul was the same one who wrote 1 Corinthians 3 that we looked at this morning, God causes the growth. But the means, the instrumentality is so closely related, namely God's gospel from the lips of fellow sinners that Paul could say that I do whatever I can within the boundaries of God's word to be an instrument of salvation in the lives of others. This is the testimony of Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.33 and following. He says, just as I also please men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. And then the first verse of chapter 11, verse 1, which is often divorced from that previous context, Paul then says, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Paul's saying in these areas of freedom I'm conscious in that I want to I don't want to be unnecessarily offensive so that I can reach the lost so that some can be saved and now you imitate me. You imitate me in this. Friends, this is vital. Some years ago, what was called the emergent church movement was popular in a lot of evangelical circles. And there was this desire to be missional. And to be missional, the word missional is, is a good word. But often it was divorced from the Truth. And it's dangerous to be missional when you divorce it from the truth. But I would also say, I don't think that's our danger here. Our danger is to be theological without seeing the mission that God gives us. To reach the lost. If you don't have any truth, you don't have anything to reach the lost with. But if you have the truth and you don't tell it to anybody. And the world goes to hell. And we are not aligning our hearts with Jesus. One commentator I think highlights. Uh, three different kind of alternatives when it comes to this first there is what he calls inoculation inoculation this is believing the gospel has made you immune to temptation and worldliness and and, and I think this is some of the air of the emergent church movement even many of the church growth strategies where you become just like the world under the guise of reaching the world. And you become a kind of cultural glutton, consuming the culture so much that you become just like the culture around you. Again, this is the water that's in the boat. And so the church becomes just like the world and again, this is divorcing the truth from the mission of the salvation of sinners. It was about a hundred years ago that the United Methodist denomination said, well, we, we, we can't be all stuck on theology and doctrine. We just need to be concerned about missions and evangelism. And it, at impulse, at, at, at first glance, it seems, okay, that seems good. But we've been able to watch what has happened over the course of a 100 years. Today, in the United Methodist denomination, lesbians are ordained as pastors. All manner of worldliness is in the boat. But then there's also, again, I think the air that we would be tempted towards isolation believing the gospel needs to be protected instead of shared the temptation to buy 40 acres of land somewhere far away from any other human beings to put barbed wired fences all around your property To stock up on ammo. And to isolate yourself from the rest of the world. Now I'm, you know, some of you may have an impulse towards farming. I'm not saying it's more righteous to live in the city than is the country. You get what I'm saying though. What I mean is the impulse to look at the world around us and say, my goodness, I don't want to be here, and so I'm going to create my own little kingdom where I don't have to deal with all the nonsense around me. That's also not the right impulse. And so, here's a third option. Not inoculation, thinking that I'm immune to worldliness and don't need to fight against the lies of the devil and worldliness. And then in my attempt to, 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 uh, to, to fulfill the mission and the commission of making disciples, I become just like the rest of the world. Not the other Arab, I'm going to isolate from the rest of the world. I'm going to have a Christian barber and a Christian mechanic and, 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 and somehow divorce myself from this world But how about this one? Insulation. We marinate our minds in the truth of the gospel and his word regularly. And we're combated with the truth of God's word to to fight against the lies of the devil and we charge the gates of hell with the message of the truth of God's word. You see friends, we do not get to choose the generation that we live in. And I get it, there's a temptation as we have watched the crumbling of civilization all around us to say, Lord, take me home. I'm good. Beam me up, Scotty. You don't get to choose. I mean, think about it imagine in the military, you know, a, a commanding officer giving an assignment. And a lower ranking person saying, I don't want that. That's hard. That makes me uncomfortable. No! You follow orders. We don't choose the generation that we are living in right now. You have been assigned to it. You have been appointed to it. It is your mission field. Jesus prayed. I, sanctify, I, I He prayed that they would be sanctified in the truth... And as I have been sent into the world, so I send them into the world. This is the world you've been sent to. Like it or not, suck it up, buttercup. It's what you've been assigned to. And so instead of insulating yourself from it, instead of Inoculating yourself and gluttonizing yourself with it. Be separate from it. Live distinct, radically different. And, and and this is the I think the fascinating thing about the world we live in right now, in this post Christian world, increasingly You know, for for many years, so much of Western civilization was living on the fumes of the influence of Christianity. Well, those days are gone. And so there was a, a kind of Christian morality that still might be there without Christian belief. But even that Christian morality is not there. And so it gives us an opportunity to shine the light better. To live radically different. So, friends, ask yourself Am I embracing the mission that Jesus gave me? He said He was sent into the world, and I'm sent into the world. So, do you know who your neighbors are? That's a good place to start. Have you even met them? Have you begun praying for them? Have you taken that next step to have a conversation with them? God has given you a stewardship with these relationships around you. How about the the different opportunities the Lord has just given us even on Friday night? I've been trying to encourage folks to open up their homes to opportunities with international students. So far, three people have volunteered. Three three homes. I wish that there was 30, 40 people said, okay it's going to be awkward. Okay, I'm going to have to make vegetarian meals. <laughs> but it's, it's part of the mission. Jesus came down to the cesspool of sin lived for 33 and a half years so that you would be set apart and devoted to him. So that you could experience salvation. Can't we endure a little bit of suffering, a little bit of uncomfortableness so that we can be a part of what Jesus is doing in this world? This is why you've been left. Ralph Kuyper tells a story of a girl coming into his office as he served as pastor. A young girl who had just been at vacation Bible school throughout the whole previous week, and she comes to the pastor and she says, Is it wrong for a Christian to commit suicide? Well, this pastor Kuiper was a little bit shocked by this statement from this young girl. But he had enough sense to ask some more questions. And so he said, well, why is it that you would even think about committing suicide? She said, well, it's because of what I learned in vacation Bible school this past week. Well, obviously now... Pastor Kuiper was all ears. What did you learn in vacation Bible school that would make you want to take your own life? Well, she said, I, I learned about heaven. That's a place where there, there's no suffering, no sorrow, no conflicts, no sin, no disease. And pastor, you know my home. You know my parents are both drunks and they're constantly fighting with one another. And you know what I go through. You can feel her question, right? You see, there's many ways to answer the question of that young girl. But certainly one of the answers is that we have a purpose for staying. We have a mission. In the midst of this dark, confused, truth-trampling world, we have an assignment. You are part of God's special forces unit. You've been set apart for a mission to seek and to save the lost. May we Embrace that mission, let's pray.